Welcome to the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast. Um, today I have with me again uh, Dr. Richard Leonius, and we are going to be talking about Chaim Perlman. Now, Chaim Perlman, just imagine this scenery, this scene. He's a leader in the Jewish underground in Belgium during World War II. And while he's doing all the work he's doing there, which includes, by the way, one of the only successful attempts at rescuing Jews that were being sent to uh, concentration camps. While he's doing that, he's writing <laughs> a book on justice. And he was a trained analytic philosopher, and but he became very frustrated by finding that through his training in analytic philosophy, he could not find a way to define justice or discuss justice that would see uh, what he was doing and as the what the Nazis were doing as equally rational. That would not see that as equally rational. And he said that um, if there is no foundation for justice in the current vocabulary in this field, in analytic philosophy, and therefore the vast domain of values and norms would remain vague and unexplored as long as, so long as we limited ourselves to affirming that values have a role in our lives without knowing how to talk about them or how to adhere to them. He said it was difficult to be resigned to positivism, which declares equally arbitrary all value judgments, when our whole being revolted against totalitarian ideologies, which scoffed at the dignity of man and the fundamental values of our civilization liberty, and reason. And this prompted his turn towards the ancient art of rhetoric, of which he became a proponent of the new rhetoric uh, and one of the greatest contributors to the field of the new rhetoricians. Wouldn't you say? Yes, I couldn't agree more with you. That's an excellent uh, representation of uh, Perlman. So um, you actually met Prime Perlman at one time, right? Uh, it was uh, before my time, so I didn't have a chance. Yes, I was uh, very lucky. I was at a conference in Louisville, Kentucky, in the United States, and uh, Professor Perlman was there, and I had the opportunity to speak with him briefly. It was a wonderful moment, inspiring for me, uh, partly because going into that, or primarily, not partly, I think, because I do consider him to be not only one of the great rhetoricians of the 20th century, but I feel that he may his impact over time may be realized as the strongest. Uh, and that's saying something, because the 20th century and what are called the new rhetorics of the 20th century is a, an incredibly important period in the history of our discipline. So to rank him that highly, I hope will give a perspective on how I view his contributions. Now, for those uh, who don't know about the the term, the new rhetorics or the new rhetoric, uh, we've talked so far about Isocrates, Aristotle, Cicero, uh, Quintilian. These would be classed in kind of the classical rhetoric or the old rhetorics group, you could say. And uh, when we talk about the new rhetoricians, 
we talk about primarily, would we say, um, 1900s, uh, especially after World War II. We have we have a somewhat of a movement uh, where with a lot of people in a lot of different fields actually doing a lot of the same things and turning towards rhetoric as a cure, you could say, for exaggerated positivism? Well, I think that's true. I think that uh, at the end of World War II, many believed that that the victory uh, should be seen as a instantiation of the importance of democracy. And with democracy comes deliberation to seek out uh, resolutions to issues of justice, for example, as you mentioned. And Perlman was appointed by the United Nations to be with a group that would try to find educational systems that could be internationally done to have disciplines such as rhetoric instantiated as a part of the curriculum so that uh, the idea of argument and determining issues of value and preference could be learned and and to how to apply them. And during our next podcast, we will talk about the application of that in terms of rhetorical criticism. But our goal today is to try to capture Perlman's views on the new rhetoric at a time when there were uh, was really a, a wellspring of different views on rhetoric, and it and that period is called the new rhetorics, plural, because of all the different contributions that were made. But Perlman's is important because he stresses argument. There are many other ways of looking at rhetoric, but that's certainly the a dominant way. And his building off of the classical tradition is uh, an important way to talk about his contributions, and I'll go into that in the, a little bit more in a few minutes. So uh, going back to that, um, I've, uh, I looked at this uh, article from uh, uh, Ray Deren in The Promise of Reason, Studies in the New Rhetoric, which uh, discuss a lot of uh, this work that uh, Perlman has done. And he talks about this uh, United Nations or UNESCO panel uh, in uh, yes. beginning in 1948 and this whole, whole uh, group of uh, people that uh, participated there. Arne Ness is a, was a philosopher from Norway, but uh, he was there. Uh, Richard McKeon was there. Uh, Stein Rockham. Uh, so a lot of people from the uh, from the democracies of the world, you could say. And they said that for the first time, this is uh, the committee postulated it's that democracy had emerged as un- an uncontested value following the fe- defeat of fascism in the yes. just completed war, and that for the first time in the history of the world. No doctrines are advanced as anti-democratic. The acceptance of democracy as the highest form of political or social organization is the sign of a basic agreement in the ultimate aims of modern social and political institutions. So, whereas before it was kind of like, you know, uh, before World War II, a lot of people felt maybe democracy was kind of run out of gas. It was uh, (laughs) doomed to failure. It was... A lot of people, as uh, Robert Smil- uh, Patricia Roberts Miller talked about, saw democracy as tied inherently to a kind of 
laissez-faire kind of liberalist economy that you couldn't uh, that uh, you couldn't have democracy and at the same time have a large welfare state and those kind of things which obviously today we don't see it that way anymore after world war ii it felt like democracy has won has won the day and we're going to um consciously um, promote it and enable people to become uh, citizens in a democracy to prevent that this terrible thing ever happens again. Now, in the light of our current uh, kind of populist authoritarian moment, <laughs> you could say, <laughs> where even people in democracies, p- democracies are in crisis <coughs> in a lot of countries, um, what, how good of a job do you feel that we've done? <laughs> well, I think we need to uh, do a better job. I think we need to go back and to learn lessons from the horrific experiences of World War II and what the objectives were after that, which I think we have uh, departed from, or at least not to the degree, enacted them to the degree that we would want. I think education is the long-term solution. And I think in part uh, of that education is to listen carefully to the uh, ideas expressed by Perlman because he provides a way for us to deliberate and systematically make choices that are rational in terms of justice and resolving social issues. As he often, as he said in the conclusion of his work in New Rhetoric, the alternatives are disastrous. You can have uh, a fanaticism where you have no choice, you just have to follow the dictates, or you can have ambivalence where you feel any value is as good as any other, and so it doesn't make any difference and you throw up your hands in despair. But the alternative is to have rhetorical deliberation through argument where you can try working together with people to make reasonable decisions about courses of action and express rival views freely and without intimidation. And enacting that system, I think Perlman would have said, is the resolution that should come out of the terrible experiences that we had in the war. So should we set the stage a little bit as he does in the book and talk about the, the poverty that uh, how uh, Descartes and, and later other positivists uh, essentially robbed the concept of rationality of anything that wasn't self-evident or wasn't or, or wasn't, um, as the positivists will say, anything that's not empirical or analytical is just rubbish, it's nonsense. Yes, I think to do that, we, we, if we do, as you said, go back in history, we can see that out of the classical period, rhetoric had thrived as a system for trying to have civic and social issues deliberated and resolved. But during the medieval period, just because of the conditions, a lot of those works on rhetoric were lost. The Renaissance 
was an exciting period to rediscover them and to reintroduce a lot of the ideas of the classical period into Renaissance thought, but also during this time. Uh, there was the rise of science with Descartes in the 17th century and his work, A Discourse on Method. And there was a competing view. One is that knowledge through scholasticism comes down through the tenets of religion and the starting points. And these are views that we give the status of fact and truth to. So we have great thinkers, obviously, you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas would be probably the best example, but we have science which is emerging and saying we're not going to take starting points on just ideas of faith, but rather the status of what we think is fact, and for us fact is empirical observations or logical demonstrations. And, and so, for example, if you were to say, well, I'm going to, we're going to talk about Euclidean geometry, and we're going to uh, try to find proofs based upon these problems, and we do have axioms, they have kind of like our ideas of faith, you know, where we say shortest distance between two points is a straight line, and parallel lines never meet. And if we accept those, then we can make really uh, ironclad arguments as long as we're consistent with the systems. But Perlman might have said, well, suppose you don't agree that parallel lines never meet. Maybe as you know, Einstein said, somewhere out there in the universe, or maybe time is relative. Well, then you can't do Euclidean geometry. So we have to reassess starting points, whether they're scientific or religious and challenge those to see if they are credible ways of beginning. So in some ways it sounds like a dialectic where you have starting points where both parties agree, but it's not merely agreement. It's trying to determine whether these make sense. And here's the most common phrase we'll always hear to normal rational people. In other words, not necessarily experts, not necessarily people of great faith, but those people, but it makes sense to people. So, for example, in many court systems, we have juries that are not experts, although they call in experts, but we have normal, rational people, jury by peerage, where people come in and we try to convince them of what is the best course of action for justice. Now, what happened is science became so popular that anything, as you said, David, that didn't seem to meet those empirical tests was just waved away as not being serious. But Perlman recognized that there had been, in the classical period, a systematic ratio, as the Romans would say, for trying to determine issues of value and preference and justice, but it had been lost. So the new rhetoric is an effort to build off that classical lost tradition and provide systematic ways of dealing with values and preferences. And essentially that is the foundation for the work that he and Professor Ulbrecht's Titeca produced.
So it, it seems to me in some ways there's a, a bit of a, you can say there's a little bit of a repeating theme in some of these scientists that you have, for example, Socrates going around and then saying, oh, wh who are all the wise men? And then he thinks that actually they don't have wisdom. They just have tradition or they have like these sayings, but they're actu not actually, we don't have no way of saying they're actually true. And so you just want to doubt everything. Um, and then you have a similar with Descartes doing his doubting everything. What if even the world doesn't exist? What if there's an evil spirit or today you'd probably say a computer simulator that makes me think that I'm tasting things <laughs> or right, the matrix <laughs> That's cool. Descartes, right? So uh, what's the only foundation that you have? Well, I think therefore I am. So even if it tricks me as much as I, I want to, as they want to, I still have my thoughts, right? That's, that's uh, the, and then he says the, the, you know, some of the basic functions of God and so on. And then Bertrand Russell uh, comes with the positivists and in the same way says, I had this um, great desire for truth and a great doubt about everything that was passed off as truth and comes to the conclusion that the way to, to save truth and science and everything is to make everything more like physics because physics has contributed more to truth than all hundreds of years of philosophy in his in his eyes that's, that's what he claims so yeah. e essentially f uh, phys uh, philosophy needs to become physics and we need, need to throw away all philosophical concepts that are nonsense in physics like time like choice all kind of things they 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 have no place because we can't we can't prove them and you get um what um kind perelman says about descartes and all these others is that Descartes said that anything that is seen as probable is most likely false. <laughs> <laughs> so any argument about the probable is just sophistry. We need to do away with it. Has no has no basis. It can't, can't create any kind of good foundation. Um, and he <laughs> says uh, we feel says uh, Lucio Abelschatek and, and Perlman on the contrary that. Just here lies a perfectly unjustified and unwarranted limitation of the domain of action of our faculty of reasoning and proving. And that rather than, it didn't really expand reason, but rather limited the concept of rationality to only that which is self-evident or can be proven. Uh, and as a result, he says, we've gained great abilities when it comes to uh, acting on things. He says... Um, the term extra-technical proofs that he talks about is well designed to remind us that whereas our civilization, characterized by great ingenuity in the techniques intended to act on things, has completely forgotten the theory of argumentation, of action on minds by means of discourse. It was this theory which, under the name of rhetoric, was considered by the Greeks the, the art par ex or techne par excellence, the greatest art. Yes, that we've by limiting, taking human decisions and reasoning and the probable and moving minds out of our vocabulary, <laughs> or and, and essentially out of what we can actually talk about, which has to do with values and the probable and the good and so on, we've become powerful in our force over nature, and we've become feeble 
in our way of moving each other. <laughs> yes, I think, uh, and I'm not trying to sound sarcastic in reconstructing this early history, but I think it's fair to say that uh, we went through a period where we had a love affair with science. We really thought that was the only way to go. And so certain disciplines try to uh, become better, which is a question of value, I know, by trying to be more scientific-like. And then we're talking about the natural sciences specifically, right? Natural sciences, Mm -hmm. social sciences, other ways try to appropriate the methods and the mentalities of science. And uh, there's no doubt that there is benefit in that, but that isn't all that there is. And when, as Perlman and Ulbricht's Titeka explained, now positivists such as A.J. Ayer, who really valorized the idea of uh, having only tolerance for those things which are capable of observation or demonstration, right, would be permitted. But, um, and I was very fortunate in this opportunity, David, is that I, when I was a professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, I came in as a very early young professor right at the end of the distinguished career of Charles Stevenson, who wrote Ethics and Language. And his refutation of positivism, which he did, I think, as early as in the 50s, uh, was phenomenal. And I used to have him come to my class and to talk about this. But it becomes fairly clear that even the desire to be logically positivistic is itself not meeting its own tenets. It's what you want to do. It's your desire to do that. Right. So specifically, just for the audience, what 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 you're saying is, when they when they made the demand that uh, any uh, truth statements yes. has to be analytically or empirically verifiable, and that statement itself is not analytically or <laughs> empirically verifiable. Exactly. And so and they're breaking their own rules that they're setting for everyone else, right? Yes. And and uh, Charles Stevenson was able initially in his book to reveal that false step, that faux pas that positivists had made. And then we're left to say, okay, well, what is the alternative? Yes, that's and where, uh, yeah. That's where Perlman comes in. Exactly. That's where he, and I want to say too that I, People should know that you mentioned so well his background during the war and his work with in, in Belgium to help out uh, and do undercover work. And for his heroic efforts, he was knighted. He became a knight. And uh, I think that sort of validation is important for us to realize how well respected he is in all of his efforts as a person. And I want to just mention that. Um, And I think uh, in the book that you mentioned, The Promise of Rhetoric, Studies in the New Rhetoric. Promise of Reason. I'm sorry, excuse me. Thank you. The Promise of Reason, Mm -hmm. uh, edited by John Gage. 
Uh, I did a review of that book. So if, if individuals who hear this are interested, uh, I don't have the citation right in front of me, but I can get you the review and you can see my thoughts about it when it came out. But they're all very laudatory. That's I used to have a little exercise that I would do in my class when I started teaching the new rhetoric. And I would tell students to take this massive book, which is over 550 pages. And I would say, just, just kind of randomly open up the book anywhere, stop anywhere. And my bet that I'll make with you is either in the pages before or the pages that you've opened or the pages immediately after, if you look at the footnotes, you will see some classical reference. That's my guess. That's how much his work integrates with the theories of classical rhetoric. Um, I think also it's important to, uh, if I can give a little bit of a background, you mentioned that wonderful collection of essays, which is a feshrift for Perlman. But what I also tell students that are really serious about doing this and as a way to help them into this book is there is a smaller, he probably wouldn't call it a synopsis, but it certainly is a helpful contribution called The Realm of Rhetoric. And this small volume uh, is, I used to tell students, I said, it's a great work to read first before you to read, to get kind of an overview. And then afterwards, after you've gone through and read the new rhetoric and discussed it, it's a great work afterwards to refer back. So it helps in a preliminary way and it helps in a synthetic way at the end to pull ideas together. Um, I also like to tell people that this work is one of the works, and I'm saying this only as a personal anecdote, that really changed the way I thought about rhetoric. In other words, if you're a student of rhetoric and you go through and you, you learn one theory and here's another theory and here's the views of Burke and here's the views of Toulmin and here's the views of Wayne Booth, you hear all these other Richard Young. Uh, Perlman is the one that really changed the way I thought about rhetoric. I didn't think the same way about it before I started as I did afterwards, so to say the obvious. Now, if this, if we want, we can go ahead and I can tell you what I think are some of the major ideas of the theories of rhetoric that appear in this work. Mm -hmm. And I'm stressing what, okay. And the, which I say as, yeah. a, as a preface, he says, here we are tilling a field that has lain fallow for a long time. Now he didn't know he didn't know obviously a lot of the things that were going on in America at the time. This is a European professor; he's a Belgian. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, and that was but that was his comment, and that and so he has to he and uh, Lucy Albertetic they have to do a lot of theoretical work first to essentially set the ground for for the heuristics and the argumentation patterns and so on that they were going to be, which we will discuss next time. And so that's yes. the, the theory that we we're hearing now is kind of the basis, the the ground from which all these things should grow. Say it that way. <laughs> and I think just by good luck, sometimes the stars just line up the right way, I guess. But um, Professor Perlman's 
daughter was a student came to America as a student so he would come over to America to visit her and I think and indirectly he would get come into contact with other professors and he realized how well his work had been received in America and I'm not sure of this I'm almost positive of this is that Henry W. Johnstone Jr. who was a professor of philosophy and at Penn State and with Carol Arnold started the journal Philosophy and Rhetoric, was a major person in introducing the works of Perlman and Ulrich Titeka to American readers. And then on the other ways, you said Europeans began to realize the importance of argument and then realized that Americans had been doing work on argument for decades. And so there, that stimulated an interaction and um, conferences and argument that had started in the 70s and 80s in Europe were always uh, inviting Americans to join and participate. So a really wonderful thing happened of having uh, not a bright line between European scholarship and American scholarship, but quite the opposite, a wonderful interaction. And we're very fortunate that that happened and we're still reaping the benefits of it, I think. Another example, like another example of cross-pollination. <laughs> yes, yep. and a very productive one, too. Um, I think that one of the points that I think th that you mentioned so well is the search for trying to find a systematic way of making good decisions of values and preferences that will help us to arrive at justice. And uh, I think if you look at the works of Aristotle, and he says this at different points throughout the rhetoric, that the idea of the whole system of rhetoric is, he calls crisis, which is to make a judgment about questions of value and preference. And I think this is really in the same spirit as the new rhetoric. One of the things that the new rhetoric does early on, and I don't want to repeat, although you said this so well, is the difference between demonstration and argumentation. If we had a continuum, we might say that on one end would be logic, you know, just pure logic. And, and then moving with the next one might be uh, argumentation, where we apply rationality to really understand as best we can questions of practical and temporal issues, not necessarily universal ones, not necessarily ethereal ones, but pragmatic day-to-day -day rigor in thinking about ideas. Um, and then if we were to continue on, we might say, well, or we'll have theories of persuasion that not only try to provide rational reasons, but really recognize em emotional forces that recognize and build into it. You know, uh, if you look at the early dialogues of Plato, he doesn't tolerate emotivism. He sees it as detrimental to reason. Mm -hmm. But theories of persuasion recognize that that is a part of how we 
think and uh, and act, and we need to account for those, not just to s- not throw cold water on them, but recognize that what goes on. And then at the other end of the extreme, meaning like logic on one end and then argument and persuasion, we would probably say would be propaganda, where we're really trying to provide uh, an understanding of how people are manipulated by giving the appearance of what looks like salient reasoning. Of course, the Achilles heel of all propaganda is once the techniques are revealed, the person who hears these often either rejects them or accepts what goes on in spite of the trickery. Sometimes you and I have had a system where we say, well, I really agree with the point, but I don't agree with the way you're arguing it. I think there are other reasons. But the idea is, as Aristotle said, we can make judgments. So you can say, in some ways, uh, the this continuum is from the very thorough, but potentially very ineffective <laughs> and very limited, to the to the broader, potentially very effective, but not very uh, thorough, you know, like some propaganda is just instill an emotion and that's all it does. It doesn't even have any, any data to it, right? It doesn't even have a claim, just yes, this is who we are, this is who you're supposed to be, you know, or just do this, just a directive with, you know, with some kind of emotion behind it. Yeah, we've all, we've, we've been in situations where we're arguing with someone and a person will just look at us and say, there is no argument that you can give me that will change my mind. Right. Well, I, as I used to tell my students, when if theoretically when that happens, rhetoric is of no value because no matter how good your arguments are, they're going to reject them. So part of this is that we have to have an open mind to be able to not only listen to other arguments, but try to see if they are worthy of changing our view. So there is a... Uh, hope of an openness to give a fair hearing. And so say it this way, uh, Perlman is interested in the, the in the middle of that, right? Yes. Where it's like, yes. it's, it's arguments adapted to an audience, trying to engage them, uh, but not uh, pure emotivism or uh, what he would say. Uh, he says Plato calls these things flattery but they're not just adapt adapting to your audience is not just flattery because if you just flatter them you don't actually change their mind at all right so yes it's it's adapting to your audience but also uh, changing their mind through argumentation yes freely there you know we're not holding a gun to anybody's head um when someone tries to rob another person, they don't go about saying, well, I want to give you all these five reasons why you should give me all your money. <laughs> they merely hold a gun and say your money or your life. Right. And they try to take away any possibility of doing anything. I used to ask my students, what do you think the difference is between a skeptic and a fanatic? Because you think they would be, you know, and I said, well, the you know, the fanatic believes that his or her values is the truth, and they don't tolerate any other views. So some religions might say ours is the only religion. All other religions are not adequate or accurate. And the skeptic, all values 
are to them just irrelevant. They don't make when no one is any better than the other. So, you know, uh, sometimes when we get into an argument with people, uh, the other person will say out of frustration, look, uh, I don't care anymore. You do whatever you want. You just go ahead. I, I don't. And, you know, and, and that is a failure in argument because, uh, and it's, it, 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 sometimes I feel it's as bad as coercion because they've, they've also closed their mind. They just say, just do anything. I don't care anymore. So you have to have, as you say, David, that kind of middle ground where you care about things and you realize that something needs to be looked at and you're willing to give it a fair hearing, I would say. Um, one of the ideas I just touched on was the, uh, the point of a universal audience. In the arguments of science, if you want to call it that way, the there's a belief that what makes for a good um, argument in science is that it makes sense to everyone. To it's it'll make sense um, in different countries. It'll make sense in different periods across times. It's universal. You know, we also hold certain values that we think are universal. Like Americans argue that all people are created equal. Now, our history has shown that some Americans don't agree with that, but that's a starting point. Perlman and Ulbricht's Tech has shown in the new rhetoric that what we really do in everyday interaction is direct our audience arguments to particular audiences, to people who are real listeners or readers or hearers, and they have with themselves their own values. So to in the new rhetoric, they start off, and of course you can think of course, but they start off by examining the starting points of argument. Not as we talked about the complete adherence to a certain religious doctrine, you know, as a starting point or complete ambivalence, but what are the starting points? And they say that there are two major divisions of any kind of argument in rhetoric. One is uh, what are considered facts, truths, and presumptions. And those are called arguments of the real. In other words, a fact. It is a fact that I'm in the United States of America right now. Truths can be connections of facts. Because I'm in the United States of, of America, I can't be in Europe at this moment because I can't be in two places at the same time. And then also, and some people might contest this, presumptions. When you go into a, a, a law court, we try to say that one of the things the jurors try, try need to do, and we try to screen for this, is to presume that the person who is being litigated is innocent until proven guilty. Some countries have a presumption of the opposite. You have guilty and you have to prove innocence. But there are presumptions of starting off that are seen as real. The other part of the starting point of arguments are arguments that of value, where you establish 
not only the worth of something, but also its hierarchy, how important is it to you, right? And also a preference for how you like to argue. And I'll get to that in a second. But in other words, we say that I value my money. I like, I really like to accumulate money. It makes me feel secure. I feel happy. I, it gives me a certain degree of freedom. And then we have another value. Well, if you donate your money, you may be able to help find a cure for cancer. And I really value that. I want that. I don't want to give up my all my money, but I can adjust my hierarchy. So I'll give some money for cancer research based upon why you say this is important. So I can, I'm open to adjusting my values and the hierarchy of my values. The other things is sometimes we just prefer in the starting points, certain kind of arguments over others. Like for example, if you say, um, I would say the history of soccer or football, calcio and it is, uh, <laughs> Based on statistics, we determine the worth of a player based upon her or his, how many goals did they score, how many championships did they have. And we just like to argue that way, that we prefer to chronicle the history of soccer statistically in order to capture its history. Or if we say someone belongs in the Hall of Fame, what? how do we argue? Well, we don't just say, well, his mother thinks he should be in the Hall of Fame. We say, here's how many goals he scored. Here's how, how what he did on defense, that sort of thing. So all of that, those starting points are important. But then they go on and they say, we need to recognize how rhetoric operates not widely, not only widely as a universal idea of argument, but inside of argument. Like, for example... When you make an argument, the data that you select to make your case and the way you present it are also rhetorical choices. Now, how can that be? Well, you pick data that you think is going to be convincing to the listener or the reader. Some things may not matter to them, but you're thinking this will matter and how to present it. So if you say to them, this is the most important concept that you need to understand to make a decision. Well, that's a rhetorical choice. It's a question of value. I'm anticipating. So it isn't, and we can't present all the data. I don't think that would be impossible, but we can choose and select what we think will be convincing to an audience member. That also shows the, the principle that he talks about earlier, that it is in the with the conception of an audience that an argument is formed. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to formulate an argument to really kind of know how to formulate an argument if you don't have a conception of an audience in your mind. Exactly. And every child, as important as that is, and you're absolutely right, children begin to understand this. They'll say, well, this is an argument that might convince my dad, but will never convince my mother. <laughs> You hear that? They say, you yeah. know, I or quite the opposite. You know, you know, 
I can get away with this with dad, but mom will never let me do this. And they're showing, as childish as that example may sound, an awareness that the conviction of something rests with the person to whom it is addressed, if I can say it mm -hmm. that way. And, and that's also how you choose, essentially, what is relevant in the in of the data, right? You yes. need to know where your audience is at, right? You know, to, do you need to start from the beginning that you're at this round? Well, Galileo did. <laughs> he had to start with that premise, right? Or yes. and had to explain it, and that's that other people can build on his arguments again, right? So, uh, you you can never really formulate a co coherent argument unless you have a, some kind of concept of an audience in mind that needs to be persuaded. Yes, and one of the examples I give to American students that may not be relevant to European students, so I'll try to explain, is, is that in, in American history, there was this religious movement that was called Tent Revival. And what would happen is that preachers would go to areas that normally didn't get great preachers or whatever, and they would literally build a tent, and they would preach for days on end. Now, I said, now, imagine, I would tell the students, hypothetically, just hypothetically, that everyone who went into that tent, under that tent, already believed in the major tenets of the preacher. They had this, uh, what, what Perlman and Ulbricht Tekeka called a shared view of reality. In other words, they already believed that there was a God. They already believed that there was a heaven and a hell. They believed in the notion of grace. They believed in these major points in Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God and a member of the Trinity with the Holy Spirit and the Father. So they already believed these. If that were the case, then the, there's certain kinds of arguments that the preacher could make that are based upon an already established shared view of reality. However, suppose some people in the tent didn't believe that. Maybe they had never heard it. Maybe this preacher was a missionary. They had never heard of grace. They had never heard of Jesus. They had never heard of it. Then the preacher's task would be to make rhetorical arguments to establish a shared view of reality. And in the work that we're going to, that we're looking at, these two very important phenomena are treated. There are certain arguments that are powerful based upon a shared view of reality, and there are certain arguments that are powerful uh, or potentially powerful, I guess you could say, when we need to establish a shared view of reality. When the missionary, missionary lands on an island and needs to establish this, this view. Or to take your uh, analogy, uh, Paul speaking in Athens. Yes. About the Christian God, right? Yes, and how he says, you know, I know you have many gods, and you have an unknown God. He says it to the Areopagites. But my what I'm trying to show you is there is a one all-powerful universe. So he builds on what they view to try to get them to see a view of reality that he – to share a view of reality – that he has. That's an excellent point. Right. Yes. So uh, in the work, then, Perlman and Ulbricht's Tychekis say, well, there are techniques 
to to do this. There are techniques of arguments, and I mean techniques in the sense of a techne or an art to doing this. There are artistic ways of creating an argument, uh, and these are called. One of the dominant techniques is called quasi-logical arguments. Now, I try to explain almost immediately after those words come out of my mouth, David, that I don't mean pseudo. I don't mean false. I don't mean fake. I don't mean bogus, fallacious. I mean quasi in the sense of the spirit of logic. Sometimes you'll hear a minister at the end of a sermon say, in conclusion, well, it's not really a logical conclusion. I mean, in the sense of a demonstration of a logical reasoning, but it means a kind of a, it borrows that term of logic. He borrows, she borrows that term of logic to say, okay, here comes the ending. This is the synthesis. This is what it all means. And Sometimes we do this when we argue, we'll use terms like therefore, and we and we borrow the form of logic often. Right. Like for for example, if I were to say in a logical argument of transitivity, if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A is equal to C. It's pretty simple. If A is equal to B and B is equal to C, A is equal to C. Very simple. And that's a logical form of argument, of reasoning. But if I say, my friends' friends are your friends, it sounds much like, it's quasi, it's like mm-hmm. quasi, a logical argument of transitivity that I just made a few moments ago. But then I would say to my students, I said, well, is there any difference? Well, there is. And I said, like, for example... I tell them, I'm sure that you people are very sincere, meaningful people. So when you say a friend, it means something very important. Like, as people would say, if I have only five friends in my life, I'm very for Real friendship. I, however, am superficial. And anybody who says I say hi to and slap on the back is my friend, my buddy, my child. Well, we don't have any universal agreement on the definition of friends, but we argue my friends, friends, and that's where a question of value and hierarchy needs to be recognized. It's like logic, but it isn't. So we have to recognize the value of friendship, yours much more meaningful and sincere than my superficial one that I have. I mean, one, one that's, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. And, and if we do that, that will be a good step toward adjudicating agreement. Mm-hmm. And so what he, what he says, as far as I remember, about these quasi-logical arguments is um, in, in logic, uh, inconsistency is naturally condemned, right? If something is inconsistent in logic, then it's nonsense. It's absurd. It just gets thrown out. In humani- human uh, relations, it's not like that. <laughs> People can say one thing today and another thing tomorrow, and the person doesn't cease to exist. Uh, what... Uh, what uh, what rather polices the uh, inconsistency is not uh, contradiction, but the fear of ridicule. <laughs> yes. In the sense that if you say one thing today and one another thing tomorrow, or if you say something that's inherently contradictory, then it becomes ridiculed rather than something that's um, 
that ceases to be ceases to exist say it that way yeah and sometimes we'll say to the other person when we're arguing we'll say well that's ridiculous right because like, what we're trying to do is say well if you extend that kind of reasoning out to its natural conclusion you'll see how silly that no one would ever do anything if we thought like you did we'd never get anything done if we thought so what you're trying to do is to extend the consequences of that mode of thinking to show that it's not viable, it's not good, it's not realistic, whatever your ends are. Uh, and we, and if you think of this, this is why certain arguments, Perlman over Exotetica say, are very powerful arguments to some people. Like, for example, in a religious argument, suppose someone said in an argument of waste and sacrifice to a group of people who were Christians. And they said, you, and I'm not being sarcastic here, I'm saying the way this is how the argument goes. Suppose someone said, Jesus died for your sins. And all the Christians agreed with that. That's part of being a Christian. That's a starting point. And he did this, here comes the, the results, so that you could be in heaven and have everlasting life with God. He made this sacrifice. He died for your sins, past, present, and future. And Christians believe this. And so then we say, but you, by living your sinful life, have made a mockery of that sacrifice. That is a very powerful argument to Christians because the, the individual that they value so highly, Jesus, sacrifice so much in order for this benefit to come about to you and you're not even bothering mm -hmm. to, to follow it. So for Christians, um, and I am one, this is a very powerful argument, but it's based upon a view of reality. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes those appear, they talk about this actually to to as a, to establish or or based upon a view of reality, you know that you're already Christians. But sometimes you have to argue to establish a view of reality, as we mentioned a few minutes ago. So somebody says, "I don't know what in the world you're talking about. I have no idea." So you're saying, "Who is? How should we judge whether someone, to go back to an early example, is a great soccer player? How should we judge that?" I have no idea, and I, was, and I would say, I would might introduce a model. I'd say, okay, there was a soccer player in Brazil named Pelé. He, he is the model by which I believe that you should judge every other soccer player. He did this, he did that, he did this, but he's the starting point of what I believe. So he becomes the model. He becomes the example. Now you might say, now here's another soccer player, and then I'll use, that's the example, and then I'll use an illustration. Uh, Ronaldo is, uh, I think, a great, he may not be as like Pele in this and that, but he's also good. So by examples and then by subsequent illustrations, you begin to establish a view of reality. And that becomes, if you will, the kind of denominator of your fraction. 
So you say, okay, I'm going to judge every other soccer player. I agree with you by the standards of Pele. I'm going to, that's how I'm going. So that's how we can begin to establish a shared, but those are rhetorical again, because they are questions of perception, value, preference that are agreed upon. And then you, in, in as a way of then listening to the particular audience that I'm making argument that I'm making, excuse me, to this particular audience. So just to, just to recap, just very quickly, those things. So we have the quasi-logical ar- arguments that follow the, the structures of formal logic, but yeah. uh, adapt those to everyday arguments um, that, that we have. Uh, but they're, they're similar to, to like the formal logic arguments, but they operate in different ways. Then we have the arguments based on the structure of reality, which take essentially certain uh, things that we take for granted about how reality is structured around us, how, which may be based on culture, tradition, etc., and use those as starting points for arguments. So in some ways, they're almost deductive based on those things that we already accept. Uh, whereas the ar- uh, arguments to establish a structure of reality, here it's more inductive. We have to set something there that's not already there. Like so, we have yes. to start creating a structure. And you you notice this in, for example, new business ventures or new areas of uh, technology. And then the first things you do is what? <coughs> well, we need to start benchmarking. Okay, we need to have a some best practi- practices. That's all model, right? Model, anti-model. This is what you sh- probably should do. This is what you shouldn't do. In areas where a lot of things haven't been established already, where you're creating a new concept or or new. Uh, orientation just trying to orient yourself in a very new reality then you immediately start creating these uh, arguments based on the establishing a structure to ex- establish a structure of reality you know I, I think the uh, good example also of this um, is um, uh, race cars is that Europeans you know Grand Prix type racers, we usually have a, a view of reality of the engine. What is the engine that drives this? Well, it's piston-driven. And, and so that's the notion of engine. And some people say, well, we need to completely reconceptualize what an engine is. We're going to do something completely different, a turbine engine. It's not anything like a piston. So we reconceptualize the reality of what an engine is because you only think in engines in terms of piston-driven, and that's all you ever think. So you can make them better, you can make them more efficient, you can do that, but you, that's it. So we're can thinking of a whole other group. And so I, one time when I was working with my late wife on an advisory board for a hospital, I said, one of the problems you have is your notion of a hospital, and I tried to say this respectfully, is based upon a kind of a 19th century notion of what a hospital is. And you need to rethink what a hospital can be outside of that box that you have created just because of tradition or whatever. You need to reflect on what it could be. Um, I think the last point, too, that I would like to mention, and I think you've summarized those excellent in an excellent way, David, is called the dissociation of concepts. Now, we remember that when Plato, you may allude to this, was criticizing the sophists in his dialogues, he said that the sophists only gave the appearance of wisdom, not true wisdom. So he was trying to create a dissociation of, here's this concept of wisdom, 
And it's not just that I'm in there with all the other ones. They give only the appearance of wisdom, but I'm trying to seek true wisdom. And so he tried to create a dissociation. St. Um, Augustine argued about the notion of faith, about the appearance of faith and real faith. What does that mean? Sometimes students do this. Can you imagine if we had a first day of class and you and no one knew the teacher and none of the students knew the teacher? And so one student sits next to another student and says, well, what do you know about this Professor Enos? Do you know anything about him? Like a view of reality. Do you know anything about him? And they'll say, well, he's, he's the teacher, but he's no teacher. Well, see, that doesn't seem to make any sense. He's the teacher, but he, but what the students said, well, they said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, yeah, he's the one who takes role and he goes on with these overstated lectures and all this other sort of stuff. But as far as really providing the ways to get us to understand, to realize the implications and inspiring us to learn more, no, he's not. And somebody said, well, do you know, was there who? They said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, do you remember when we were in high school, uh, Mrs. McGillicuddy? They said, oh, sure. Well, there's a real teacher. There's some, see, they're taking that person as the standard. So they're establishing not the appearance, but they're saying this is the reality. This is what a teacher is all about. And sometimes we do this all the time. They, like we'll say, this person is a real student. These are state, statements that prompt dissociation. Here is here is a real professor. This is a this is what being a professor is all about, and that is a and that and so sometimes there are arguments where you have to establish dissociations, so that you can have a standard, as I mentioned earlier, like a denominator to judge. You know, so they'll say, "Well, do you remember Miss Miguel Cuddy? Well, yeah. Well, Professor X, Professor Smith, is just like her." This, so I'm signing up for that class. That's great. It's kind of like the uh, unjust law is no law at all. Yes. Like and kind we of do have divine law versus un, uh, earthly laws, and, and then yeah, says and unjust laws are, are do not have the divine um, approval kind of thing. Yes, and sometimes people will say, like, it's just, you know, Gandhi there, I'm breaking the law. But it's the law of man because I'm I'm trying to follow a higher law. Mm -hmm. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. did the same thing, where you know he would go to jail in Birmingham. He broke the law, but it wasn't the law that he thought he was going to be judged by. Judgment, right? And so the idea of rhetoric is you establish this view of reality. This that is the basis for adjudicating the particular arguments that are being made. And so the, uh, the dissociation of ideas, would you say it's um, a basic, I mean, it, it says, uh, we often say when, when you want to persuade someone, when you want to inform someone, you just take what they already know and just add some knowledge. When you want to persuade someone, there's usually some demolition work that needs to be done first, right? So, <laughs> so there's, yeah. you need to, in some ways, show that the structure that they currently have is faulty in some ways. And so the dissociation of ideas is essential to that move, right? To that, uh, to that, uh, that basic uh, first move in, in, in persuasion to show that, no, I want you to be true to law. 
and justice, but true law and justice, not yeah, cool. not not earthly law and justice, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of it, etc. So, and sometimes you know, in everyday interaction, we ju- we hear people say, you know, when I was young, I used to think the only thing that was, and here comes the word, really, real, really important was just earning a lot of money. The more money I earned, the better. But then as I got older, I've changed my view. Now I know that what's really important is giving back to society, and that means that I'm going to try to be more philanthropic. I'm going to try to use that capacity that I have to earn a lot of money, not for its own sake, just to grab it because I can grab it, but as an instrument to get at what's really important that is helping other people. And you hear this all the time, or sometimes when we get an argument, and you're trying to, and, and I'll say to you, I really mean this. This is what I really, well, those are statements prompting dissociation. Here's what I really believe is important. And we hear this so often. There was an old study. I don't, I hope it's still true. <laughs> I don't know if it is. <laughs> that they asked college freshmen back in 1968, what value do you most admire in people? What value do you most admire in people? And you think they might say, well, you know, college freshmen, they're what, like 18 years old, 19, uh, good looks, money, whatever. Back then, they said the, the value that they admired the most was sincerity. Mm-hmm. And, of course, their opposite value, the value they admired the least, was hypocrisy. And so if you had an audience, Perlman would say, and you knew that one of the things they valued the most was being sincere, being honest, being true. They may not agree, but they know that you are trying to tell the truth as you see it as best as you can. That is, for that audience, a persuasive force. That can be a very, and and you need to realize that if you, I used to tell the students, I said, one of the things, and I taught propaganda analysis for, gee, I think maybe 25 years. I used to tell students, one of the things, I I can never say anything in class that you don't for a moment think is completely my views or my beliefs. Because if I lose any credibility in a propaganda class, it's all lost, because then you're going (laughs) to think everything I say is a trick. I'm just doing this to hoodwink you. Right. But I think the tremendous advantage into synthesize this is that, and I know I'm saying the obvious, is that Perlman and Obrecht-Sitek have really tried to provide a systematic way of arguing in order to arrive at justice, to make decisions that are seen as just, shared by the listener or the reader as well as the speaker or writer mutually. And I think that's a tremendous contribution to argument. Hmm. Okay. The uh, the criticism that he sometimes gets from phil- philosophers is that he's purely descriptive and not normative. But I think there goes some of the uh, the biases again of the philosophers and especially in analytic philosophers and others, right? That there's no value in in truth that we get at through argumentation. That uh, that has to do with probability and so on, because essentially it it, 
it's not as strong as what Aristotle said that truth and justice are naturally stronger than their counterparts, and so you can only lose if it if truth and justice don't have adequate representation. But it is, it does uh, show a certain belief, I guess, in humans that we are able to reason together about things and 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 reach things, and we that the whole structure of of civilization and culture and so on that we we've worked our way through is not without value because we have all the arguments we can look back at if we want to go back now and look at the freedom of the press and expression we can go back to you know john milton and the uh, arapagetica and uh, you know his first arguments for the freedom of the press right and which were religious at first right saying that look if you can't uh, trust your conscience to a king or a ruler how can you trust then what forms your conscience or what you let form your conscience to the king or the ruler? Uh, and very, very interesting, still very relevant argument. And we have those structures and we can build on other good arguments and through that have some kind of progress, even in matters where, where we talk about probability and, uh, and, and likelihood and preference. Yes, and I think uh, in light of a point you made in the beginning, uh, I know that uh, some philosophers may criticize Perlman Albrecht's Titanic, and maybe even rhetoric itself, but I'm saying this, and I'm saying this without sarcasm or anything. Many of those philosophers have not made a thorough study of rhetoric before they made those criticisms. When they have people such as Henry W. Johnstone, Jr., they've recognized the rhetorical vector that even exists in philosophical argument and his book on validity and rhetoric and philosophical argument and outlook and transition is a great illustration of that. I also feel, and this is more at home to me, that classical philologists and historians who might criticize rhetorical treatises of antiquity uh, often have not made a thorough study of the history of rhetoric before they made those criticisms. Mm -hmm. And if they had, I think their views would be different. And I've said that in various reviews of works with all due respect, because it's not that the scholarship is incredible. It's just that it's not informed on that point. Right. And I think uh, one section here, it's a quite, a, quite a long quote, but uh, on uh, page 512 of the new, new Rhetoric, they address this quite clearly, what they're trying to do and what is lacking in the analytic philosophers and, and the others that have been working on this. He said, the, they say, as you talked about, the increased confidence brought about in the procedures and results of the mathematical and natural sciences went hand in hand with the casting aside of all other means of proof which were considered devoid of scientific value. Now, this attitude was quite justifiable as long as there was the hope of finding a scientifically defensible solution to all actual human problems through an increasingly wide application of the calculus of probabilities. But if essential problems involving questions of, mo of moral, social, political, philosophical, or religious order by their very nature elude the methods of the mathematical and the natural sciences, it does not seem reasonable to scorn and reject all the techniques of reasoning characteristic of deliberation and discussion, in a word, of argumentation. It is too easy to disqualify all reasoning that does not conform to the requirements of the proof 
which uh, Pareto called logico-experimental as being sophistical. For if all reasoning of this kind must be considered as a misleading form of reasoning, then the lack of logico-experimental proofs would leave the field wide open in all essential spheres of life to suggestion, suggestion and violence. Yes. I think that is an excellent quotation to capture what we've talked about today and the contributions of Perlman on the theory of rhetoric. Thank you. That's an excellent point. All right. And the next time we'll be talking more about the specific heuristics that he developed for how we can understand how to build up these things, how to strengthen those kind of arguments, how to question those kind of arguments. And uh, I feel like it's in some ways a, a guidebook to democratic deliberation. It is. And I think when we talk about this next time, where we've been stressing here theory, we're going to talk about criticism. So I'll start off by giving um, a more general overview of the distinctions between rhetorical theory and rhetorical criticism. How does literary criticism compare and contrast with rhetorical criticism? And then we'll move into the heuristics that co what are heuristics and how they can help in making uh, judgments about how you want to do this. In other words, the application of the theory in uh, not just trying to understand what goes on, but to judge whether you agree or not. So here, starting as we did with uh, this uh, Jewish underground resistance movement in uh, Belgium, sitting there between plots and plans of other things, <laughs> writing <laughs> his me. book on the nature of justice. This was his solution, that the nature of justice is something that we argue ourselves to. We talk about preference, we talk about values, and we talk about probability, and those have value and should not just be thrown away and cast aside as unscientific and therefore irrational. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.